Thank you so much for joining us. We're so glad that each and every single one of you guys are here with us here at Rock Fellowship. And I just want to take a moment to welcome anyone watching online, whether you're from Alaska or Arizona, Southern California, wherever you're from. Uh, last week, I got a chance to go out to Arizona to meet our church family over there. So good to see you guys. You guys are wonderful people, and I can't wait to see what God is going to do in the future through our partnership. Uh, we are still in our series, The Worst Sermon Ever, and the full title is What We Can Learn from the Worst Sermon Ever, A Study of the Book of Ecclesiastes. We are in part nine. Are you guys tired of this yet? Anyone? Like, how long is this series really going? Yeah, no, it doesn't matter. Actually, it's not really about that. It's about what God wants, not what I want. Uh, but we're in part nine uh, of our series, and we've been going through the book of Ecclesiastes chapter by chapter, section by section, sometimes verse by verse. And it's been a blessing for me just to prepare and study in these ways because we've been digging deep in some of these texts. I don't know if you guys remember, but a couple of these sermons were based on like two or three verses. And we've been digging deep to understand the meaning of the book of Ecclesiastes and what the teacher is talking about in, 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 the, in his writings. And so we covered so many things. And I love how Pastor Jonathan started off the sermon last week saying, we're at the point in the series where we can't recap everything because it's just way too much stuff. We've talked about like relationships and community, spiritual life, wealth, possessions, feelings and emotions and, and all kinds of stuff. So I do want to encourage you that if you want to catch up to our series, um, go back to our YouTube channel or to our podcast and you can catch up from parts one to eight. And today we are on verse nine. Now, I'm starting to sense when this series is going to end. I got a feeling. I think this series is going to be a 12-part series, okay? So we usually, the most I've done is six. We're doing double of that. We're on part nine. So I think there's going to be about three more. So I think there's going to be 12 parts or maybe 13 or maybe 14. But I think generally around there is kind of the goal. And so we're going to go into part nine today. Now, I just want to begin by sharing with you that today's message is a theologically kind of heavy message. We're going to be dealing with some theologically complex ideas, and it's kind of challenging. And I'm going to do my best to share and teach it in a way that is engaging, but it's going to be rich today. There's going to be some, like, some heavy stuff going on. But the reason why this is so important is because we're going to deal with a question that people have been asking for thousands of years when it comes to God. A question that people have been wondering about, talking about, writing about for thousands of years. And it's not an ancient question. It's a question that you probably are asking in your life or you have asked or you will ask. And you knew people who asked this question in their own lives and it was because of their answer to this question that they walked away from faith and they walked away from church. And so this is a really important question for all of us to deal with. And so I'm so excited because I think what we're going to do here is we're not going to so much answer the question. Okay, like I can't stand here and be like, I have the answer to an age-old question that people way smarter than me have been talking about for thousands of years. I know the answer. I figured it out. I'm not going to do that. But we're going to talk about this question in kind of a new way that I think helps us to understand how we can understand kind of the issues and the tensions in this question. So with that, I invite you guys to pray with me as we get into today's message. Let's pray. Father in heaven. I pray for your Holy Spirit to be present and to move and to speak to us in the ways we need to be spoken to, Lord. Open our hearts and minds. 
to your word. Let us hear your word today and nothing else. In your name we pray. Amen. We're going to go to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and we're going to cover this topic in two chapters, 7 and 8. So let's read Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 15. It starts like this. I have seen, this is the teacher who wrote Ecclesiastes, I have seen everything in this meaningless life, including the death of good young people and the long life of wicked people. Now, we've talked about this many, many times, how the word translated meaningless in our English Bibles, another way we can understand it is the, 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 the literal way he, he wrote it. It's the word hevel, which actually has to do with smoke or vapor. And so sometimes, yes, it means meaningless, but there's a sense of this word hevel that can be understood as temporary, but in this case, the best version of this understanding is confusing. So it's maybe not so much I've seen everything that's meaningless. He's saying, I've seen a lot of confusing things in life. And let me tell you about one of the things that is very confusing to me. And let me put that up on the screen again. What's very confusing to me is the death of good young people and the long life of wicked people. Now, why is this confusing to him? Why is it confusing that these good people, these, these, these people who have their head on straight, that, that are going to do a lot for the world, do a lot for God, do a lot for the kingdom, they're righteous and they do the, good, the right things, they say the right things, they're just wonderful young people. Why is it that these people's lives are getting cut short? And why is it that these other people who are wicked, who are corrupt and selfish, who have built their legacy and built their kingdom on lies and, and, and taking advantage of people, how come those people keep living and living and living and living? And how come their life lasts so long and it allows them to continue to take advantage of other people? These wicked people live so long and these good people, they're living short. That's confusing to me. Now, this is important to understand because he has seen so much. But as he looks at this, and, and he even said this back in a couple chapters ago. He said, don't be surprised when you see injustice. That's what he's getting at. What I look at when I see the situation where good people are dying young and bad people are living long, that's not fair. And he even said this a couple chapters ago. Don't be surprised when you see injustice in this world. When you see injustice under the sun, don't be surprised. Of course it's going to be there. But in this moment, he is surprised and he's confused. And in his mind, he's saying, I feel like it shouldn't be like this. And maybe you agree with that. Good people should live long. And maybe you don't say it, but maybe a part of you is thinking, bad people, maybe they shouldn't live as long. That seems more fair than the opposite situation. That seems more just. This is a version of a different question, and it's the question that people have struggled with for over thousands of years. Now, he doesn't bring God into the picture. He doesn't really say God, but you can get a sense that that's where his head is at. Right? He's like thinking about God and then this like weird injustice of young people dying, good young people dying, and old wicked people living on. And so the, the question is just a different version of the one that people have been asking for years and that you may have asked before. Why do bad things happen to good people? I'm sure many of you have asked this question. You've, you've wondered about this and maybe you've come to some conclusions. Maybe it's open-ended for you. Maybe you don't know, but you know people have wondered this. And as you look at life, maybe this question comes up in your life. Why do bad things happen to good people? Now, I'll be, I'll be honest with you guys. As a speaker, these questions are really difficult 
to answer. And so as uh, I was preparing and I read it, I was like, no, this one? I have to do this one? Oh, goodness. Why do I have to do this one? This one's so hard. This one's so confusing. There's so many different facets and, and people have thought about it. And people have all these opinions and like, oh, this is really, really challenging, God. Why? Why me? Why me? Why is this bad thing happening to a good person like me? And I have to speak on this message. But it was really cool how God kind of opened my eyes to the way the teacher deals with this question. Why do good things happen to bad people. Now, what you have to understand is that there is a method to the madness of this teacher, the, the, the koholik, the speaker in Ecclesiastes. He's strategic and he's smart. And he's not just like saying things just to say things. He has a rhyme and reason to what he says and how he says it. And so you know people like this. The teacher here, he's one of those peoples that like to push buttons. You know people like that? Some of you are married to people like that. They, like to, they know what buttons to push, they like to push the buttons, and they like to say things, they like to give out hot takes, you know, to say things that are kind of like wild and out of pocket just to see how you'd react. He, he, these people say and do these things not because they necessarily believe that, but because they're pointing out something or challenging something. And so this is what's going on with the teacher. He's giving out a hot take, he's poking some buttons, because he's challenging something and making the readers or the listeners stop and think about a long-held belief, something that everyone assumes is true. So he's asking these weird questions and bringing up these weird statements that we're going to look at in verses 16 and 17 to make people go like, huh, wait a minute. Yeah, that's a good question. So that's what he's doing here. And so that's why he says some of the things he says. So what you guys got to understand, the context of 17, uh, uh, chapter 7 is the teacher is challenging a long-held belief. And when I say long, I'm talking real long. It's a belief that people at this time have believed for thousands of years. And everyone assumes it to be true. Everyone's like, yeah, that's how it is. And the teacher is like, hmm, are you sure? Let's talk about that a little bit. He's, he's challenging a long-held belief. And it's important to, for us to understand what, the, what he's challenging because the question of why do, good, why do bad things happen to good people, it is grounded and founded on this long-held belief. Meaning, this long-held belief, if you believe it, it will lead you to the question of why do bad things happen to good people. And so the reason that question exists the question of, of, is God fair because some good person died really young or some bad person is living long or these bad things happen to people and I know them and they're fantastic and they're wonderful. God, why would you do that? That question only exists because of this underlying belief and truth that everyone believed at this time. And he's saying, wait a minute. Are you sure that's right? He's challenging this long-held and commonly held belief. So this is so important for us because he's not answering the question like, oh, this is why bad things happen to good people. He's asking, why are you even asking that question? Are you sure that is even a good question to ask? It is a, an understandable question, don't get me wrong. It is a reasonable question. And I'm not saying that anyone who has pain or has suffered tragedy that you don't, it doesn't make sense to ask a question. No, it does, I get it. But the teacher is taking a moment to ask you, is this actually a good question based on truth? 
Is it a good question based on truth? Now, the long-held belief that the teacher is challenging and questioning is something called, this is the fancy word for it, and it's a very simple idea, but the fancy word for it is retribution theology. Retribution theology. Maybe this is a new phrase for you. You learned something today at church. Fantastic. But the idea is retribution theology, and this is what he's like, hmm, let's think about that for a second. Retribution theology, let me explain it. It's very simple. This is what retribution theology is. You do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. That's retribution theology, right? It's, it's this, you get what's coming to you. You get what you deserve. It's kind of this sense of biblical karma, right? It's this idea of karma that, that if you do good and are faithful and obey, God will bless you with good things and he's going to shower you with all the things. And what's so important, what's so interesting is that when he talks about the bad people, the reason why he's saying this is confusing is because they are living long. Long life in the ancient times, in the ancient Near East, in the Old Testament, was considered a sign of God's blessing on your life. Like if you're really old, it means God is blessing you. And so this idea of retribution theology is if you're living long, then you must have been good. But then he's like, but they're not good. So I'm so confused by that. Retribution theology is this biblical idea of karma where if I'm good and I'm acting good and I'm doing good things and I'm faithful and doing all the spiritual things, God will bless me with good things in my life. And if I'm wicked and if I, if I know people and, and these people are wicked and they do bad things and they're corrupt, then they will suffer. Good people prosper, faithful people prosper, obedient people prosper, bad people, wicked people, they will suffer. And the opposite is true. If you are prospering, then that must mean you were righteous before. If you are suffering, then I guess that must mean you're wicked. And we see this in the New Testament. If you guys are familiar with the New Testament story of blind Bartimaeus, when the people see blind Bartimaeus, they, the disciples ask, what did he do? Or what did his parents do to deserve this? He is suffering, so he must have been wicked, or his parents were wicked, and this is punishment. That's retribution theology. And it went throughout ancient Israelite history and through the New Testament. Retribution theology. And he's questioning whether this is actually true. Now, I don't know what your thoughts are when I, when I explain it to you. If part of you are like, no, that's weird. Or part of you are like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. That's kind of what I believe. But there is biblical basis for this. And there's a couple of verses for why people believe this. But one of the most kind of like central verses is found in Deuteronomy 30. So let me read it, okay? And if you read this verse, you're going to be like, yeah, that's biblical. That's pretty much correct. That's what happens. Deuteronomy chapter 30, starting from verse 16. It says, God is speaking. He says, I command you this day. To love the Lord your God and to keep his commands, decrees, and regulations by walking in his ways. If you do this, you will live, multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you and the land you are about to enter and occupy. Okay? So do good, you get good. But if your heart turns away and you refuse to listen, and if you are drawn away to serve and worship other gods, then I warn you now that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live a long life, good life in the land you are crossing the Jordan to occupy. You do bad, you get bad. So this idea, it's like, it's there in the Bible, this idea of retribution theology. But the problem is, the problem with retribution theology is not just the fact that if you just look at life, that doesn't seem how things work. 
And not just now, but scripturally and biblically, there are so many times where you do not see retribution theology played out. There are so many times in the Bible, in the Bible itself, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, where righteous people suffer and evil people prosper. So, like, what are we supposed to do with that? It's said that in Deuteronomy, God's going to do that. But, like, look at all these things. Quick example, right? From the very beginning, Genesis chapter 4, the first time you see this is Cain and Abel, the children of Adam and Eve. The first thing that happens is that Abel is righteous, Cain is wicked, and Cain kills Abel. Righteous person dies young, wicked person, Cain lives until 730 years old according to the Bible. So like, where's the retribution theology there? The righteous person suffered and the evil person lived on and lived a really, really long life. Think about uh, another example in Genesis, the, the... you know, another thing about uh, God's blessings, right, like, like extra life and long life, all stuff. but fertility was also considered a blessing from God. If you were fertile and you could have lots of children, you are blessed. Now, there's a famous person in Genesis who could not have children. Her name was Sarah, and she could not have children until she was very, very old. But there's no mention of her wickedness or her evil that prevented her from being blessed with the gift of fertility. In fact, we hear it, it's actually looked at in a different light, that Sarah was infertile for a reason so that God's glory and power would be manifested through her pregnancy. Where's the retribution theology? She's righteous and chosen to bear the children of the future people of Israel, but she's suffering and has no children. Right, like time and time again, over and over again, like you see the retribution theology fall flat on its face in the Bible. I remember going through an exercise with the kings, right? I, I, if you guys ever read Kings, it's kind of a boring book. It's like this king did this and this king did that. He was, he was wicked and he reigned for this many years. He was righteous and this, he reigned for this many years. And I assumed, and I remember assuming, okay, all the wicked kings should probably have reigned for like two, three, five years max. And all the righteous kings should like have reigned for like 20, 30 years. It's not how it works out. You have righteous kings who rule for a short amount of time, and you have wicked kings who rule for years and years and years. Once again, where's the retribution theology? And Jesus is the best example of this. Jesus is the best example of this. Not only did he teach the opposite of retribution theology, because he said, if you are faithful, you will suffer is what Jesus said. If you follow me, you will be handed over. You will be persecuted. The Apostle Paul talked about that and lived his life. So not only did they teach this, but look, think about Jesus' life. Jesus was the most righteous person to ever live. He's the most goodest person to ever live, but the worst thing ever happened to him. Right, we just sang the song, the old rugged cross. Jesus was strung up on the old rugged cross, which was a symbol for many people of the day as a curse. So Jesus, the person, lived righteously and he was good and wonderful. He healed and shared the message of God, yet he suffered a death that was considered a curse. The worst thing ever happened to the best person ever. Where's the retribution theology? So all throughout the Bible, there's challenges to this idea of retribution theology. But the question of why do bad things happen to good people, can you see it comes from the idea that if I do good, I better get good. And if I do bad, they better get bad. But the question of why do bad things happen to good people, it stems from that truth or that idea. And the teacher in Ecclesiastes is saying, it's not true. 
Retribution theology is not true. In fact, he goes so far as almost to intimate that it's a lie. Last week, Pastor Jonathan talked about in his message. By the way, I got to stop for a moment. How many of you guys were here last week? Wasn't Pastor Jonathan's message just like amazing? It was so good. Like, I would say, yeah, dude, it was like the best sermon he's ever preached. And it was so good. And it's even more amazing when you think about his sermons before, a long time ago when he first got started. <laughs> I, have a, I have his very first sermon ever preached at this church on my computer. I'm just waiting for the moment to unleash it and let him hear it again and just like, remember what you did? Like, it's awesome to see what God is doing in his life. Anyway, in that message, he talked about the lie. The lie that makes us want more and more and more and more and buy and consume and get more. There's a lie today under retribution theology and, and kind of the modern day version of it, guys, it's not, people don't call it retribution theology and it's not exactly the same, but the kind of the modern day equivalent of retribution theology is something we call prosperity gospel. He said, if I'm faithful and I obey God, God wants only good things. He wants health and wealth. Health and wealth. I'll just name it and claim it. Like, that's the idea that, that a lot of people believe in. And it's, like, appealing, man. Like, I wish that was true. <laughs> but there is a lie under, undergirding and underlying retribution theology and prosperity gospel. And, and this is a lie. We have to expose it. I have to expose it to you. The lie is, if you believe in God, good things will happen to you. This is a lie. And it's a weird thing, right, for me to be in church. You, you think it would be encouraging to be like, no, be faithful. God will bless you. And yeah, God blesses people. Yeah, he still blesses people. And he still challenges people. And he still disciplines people. Yeah, absolutely, God still does that. But it doesn't work in the same way that retribution theology teaches. Because retribution theology teaches one-to-one, -one, right? You do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. Right, it's this idea of like this divine karma. That's not how it works. But this is a lie. If you believe in God, good things will happen to you. If you believe that lie, then yes, the question of why do bad things, and good, good, bad things happen to good people, it makes sense. Because I was good, so good things to happen to me. But I was good, but why are bad things happen to me? It is the underlying truth or the underlying idea or lie is if I believe in God, good things will happen. And unfortunately, this is not true. And I say unfortunately, like honestly, like I wish this was true. Because if this was true, it would make my job way easier. Because I could look at you and be like, see, you need to obey God more. But I can't do that. I, I, I wish I could be like, look at this person. Look what's happening in their lives. Look how faithful they are. And look at what's happening. Let's do that. I feel like our churches were probably really big and we'd be growing if this was true. But unfortunately, it's not. It would make things easier and make things way more clear. But it's a lie. And I have to question you and ask you, is it possible that any part of you still holds on to retribution theology? And you're probably like, no, no, like, I don't believe that. Clearly, I don't believe that. But I want you to take a moment to think about it. You know, recently in my life, I've... Um, I've gotten back into golf, right? Like, I, I really enjoyed golf before, and it started kind of like the passion has been rekindled in my life for golf. And uh, part of it was because some YouTube videos I watched. I went to the driving range, and then I started changing some stuff up. And I was like, oh, I've been doing it wrong my entire life. Like, now I'm going to be really, really good. And then so I've been practicing, and I've been going to the range. I hate the range. I hate the range so much. But lately, I've been enjoying the range. And so I was at small group this past week, and I was talking to one of our church members who's a golfer, and I was like, hey, 
I've been enjoying golf so much, man. I've been, I've been going to the range. I've been crushing it. I feel like I know what I'm doing. I learned some things and I'm changing some things. And then he looked at me as like this older and wiser veteran golfer. And he said something to me. And he said, listen, sometimes you think you're changing stuff, but you're not actually changing. And I was like, oh, man. Lloyd, why would you say that, dude? <laughs> Lloyd, come on, man. Like, I was like sharing my passion with you. Just like, pfft. But that was like, he said, sometimes you think you're changing stuff, but actually you're not changing anything at all, which is the most Ecclesiastes things to say to me, right? It is the most Ecclesiastes thing. But that's so true. Sometimes you think you've been making changes, but at the end of the day, you're not actually changed at all. And so I have to ask you the question, is there a part of you that thinks, no, nah, I don't believe in retribution theology. I know that it doesn't work like that, but is there a part of you that's in you that's still like, yeah, I kind of think that. Right, like if you've ever tried to manipulate God to do something or to create some kind of outcome by acting and behaving a certain way. God, if you do this, I'll do this. If you would just do that, then I'll start reading my Bible every day. I'll start praying every day. I'll start going to church. Like if you've ever done that, there's a part of you that still thinks that retribution theology might be true. If something bad has happened to your life and the question that came to your mind was, what did I do to deserve this? you might believe a little bit in retribution theology. But this lie of if you believe in God, good things will happen to you, man, is so dangerous. Like not only is it not true, but it's dangerous because here's what you do. When you believe in the lie that if you believe in God, good things will happen, you set God up for failure. You set God up for failure. Not to say that God will ever fail. You know, we understand and know with faith that God will never fail. But what you do is you, you hold God to a promise that he never made. And so he won't follow through on a promise he never made. But you will interpret that as God failing you. And you will be hurt. And your faith will be hurt because of it. It's dangerous to believe in this lie and to allow God to put God in a place where he never said he would be and to invite him and expect him to do things that he said he'd never do. He's never promised this to you. So it's dangerous and we need to expose this lie. So now, knowing that the, the teacher of Ecclesiastes 7 is very suspicious of retribution theology, right? We know that. He's like, I don't know. We got to think about that. I don't know if that's true. Because look at life. Look at the Bible. All that stuff. It makes sense as to what he says next. So his response to this, this, this reality that retribution theology doesn't always play out, he says this in verse 16 and 17. And this is the hot take. So, because it doesn't really work one-to-one, -one, this biblical karma, don't be too good or too wise. Why destroy yourself? On the other hand, don't be too wicked either. Don't be a fool. Why die before your time? And when we first read this and you don't understand that he is putting out kind of an extreme message, he's saying something kind of wild and out of pocket to make you stop and think, you'd be like, oh, this is awesome, right? Like, what is he doing here? It sounds like he's, he's justifying like lack of commitment to God. That he's justifying kind of like non-devotion and non-piety to God. Like, oh, it's okay. You don't really have to try that hard. Like, you don't have to go to church every week. You can just like miss some here and there. You know, you don't have to love people all the time. You don't have to love all people. Like some of those people, you know, man, it's okay. Right? It, it seems like he's, he's giving permission to like a little taste of the forbidden fruit here and there is okay. It's not too bad. 
Right, so this is like a, what the, what are you talking about? This is that out-of-pocket, wild, hot take statement that is making you think like, wait, 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 no, 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 you can't do that. So, 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 so what is he getting at? What is he getting at here when he says this? And he's going to explain what he really thinks later in chapter 8, and we'll get to that in a few minutes. What is he really saying? What he's saying here when he says, don't be too good or too wise, he say, he's saying that the practical application of retribution theology is legalism. That's what he's bringing to the surface. The practical application, right? At this church, in my sermons, Pastor John's sermons, we always like to focus on practical application. Like, what are you going to do with this message? The practical application of retribution theology is legalism. It's this idea, well, okay, if I do good, I get good. Well, I better just do a bunch of good. I'm just going to do a bunch of good. I'm going to go all in on righteousness and wisdom, and I'm just going to act the part. I'm going to do everything I'm supposed to do, because if I do that, God will give me all the things that I want. Right, the practical application is legalism. So he's like, when he says too good, he's talking about legalism. He's like, don't go to that place where you feel like you're going to do all these things so you can get God to give you what you want. And on the flip side, on the other hand, he says, at the same time, like we need to reject retribution theology. So don't seek legalism and try to get God to do all these things. But at the same time, you can't just like ignore the idea of consequences. You can't just be like, I'm just going to do whatever I want because apparently if I, if I do good, I may not get good. So you know what? I'm just going to do whatever I want. I'm going to ignore the fact that cause and effect happens. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about retribution theology here. He's talking about cause and effect. And he says this, and, and, and the, the, the funny thing that he says in verse 17 is, on the other hand, don't be too wicked either. Don't be a fool. Why die before your time? When the, the way he wrote, why die before your time, the language there indicates that the dying is being done to you. You with me? So he's saying, don't be a fool. Don't ignore the fact that cause and effect happens and there are consequences. Because if you do, why die before your time? Someone may come and bring dying to you. In other words, if you just ignore the idea that there are consequences for your actions, someone may come to you one day and kill you. So it's like you can't just go this side and go all retribution theology, but you also can't just ignore the fact that there are repercussions for your decisions and your actions, there are consequences. Which makes sense, what he says in the next verse as he gives his solution. So it's like very confusing, right? It's like, okay, so what do you want us to do? And he gives his answer in verse 18. He says, so pay attention to these instructions for anyone who fears God will avoid both extremes. In the light of the fact that retribution theology is untrue, that God doesn't just one-to-one -one bless you if you do good or give you bad if you do bad, he says, avoid extremes and fear God. Avoid extremes and fear God. And I don't know about you guys, but I think that's great advice for our world today, right? Avoid extremes and fear God. And so we're going to talk a little bit about this fear of God, and then we're going to close here. The fear of God is a central theme to the book of Ecclesiastes, and he hasn't really talked about it. And in a later sermon, we're going to dig deep in the idea of fearing God. But this is my favorite part of this message. He says, in everything, because retribution theology, all that stuff doesn't, is not true, you need to fear God. Just fear God. And then he, he points to this again in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, the next chapter. And he kind of explains once again this confusing injustice. This is what he says in verse 12. But even though a person sins a hundred times and still lives a long time, right, long time being a symbol of God's blessing, I know that those who fear God will be better off. 
Now, this statement here, this statement is a controversial statement. I know for you it's probably not. It's like, that's, that, that sounds fine. That sounds fine with me. But in that day, this was extremely controversial, that those who fear God will be better off because what he's saying is he's challenging thousands of, years, thousands of years of thinking where people said the people who are better off are those who do good, the righteous. He's challenging this idea and he's saying that those who are better are off are the ones who fear God, not the righteous. The opposite of the wicked in Ecclesiastes 8 is not righteous. It's the ones who fear God. I want you to take a moment and think about that. The opposite of wicked is not righteous. The opposite of wicked is those who fear God. Where it's not so much about behavior and action but it's about the posture between you and God, about a relationship between you. That seems to be more important to the teacher of Ecclesiastes than what you do or don't do. It's how you and God, how your relationship is characterized. He's saying that's what really matters. And even though a bad person sins a hundred times, and even though we don't see retribution theology, it seems like injustice because he's living long, and he apparently is living out the blessings of retribution theology. The ones who are better off are the ones who fear God, who have a relationship with God that is, that is right. That's his conclusion of this whole issue of why do bad things happen to good people. He doesn't answer the question. He says, what you got to do, doesn't matter. What you got to do at the end of the day is you must learn to fear God. Then you will be better off. Not if you act good and behave well and do the right things. But the question for us as we close is what does it mean then to fear God? Right, well, how do we fear God? And, and if you grew up in church, you've heard this phrase over and over and over again. And I bet you no one has ever really given you a great explanation. Now, we're gonna, like I said, we're going to deal with it later and go deep into it, but I want to share a part of what it means to fear God, and I hope that this, this, this explanation may be helpful for you. Here's what I think. Part of what it means to fear God is allowing God to be God and allowing you to be you. When you fear God, you allow God to be God and you to be you. In other words, you allow God to know the things that he needs to know, and you allow yourself to know the things that you need to know. And you allow God to know the things that he needs to know. And you are comfortable with the things that you are not supposed to know. That you have, are able to accept the vulnerable position. And it is a vulnerable position. A vulnerable, the vulnerable position of not knowing. Fear of God allows you to say, God, you should know what you need to know. And I won't know what I won't need to know. And that's really, really hard for a lot of people. It's really, really hard for us to, to understand that. The fear of God, allowing God to be God and you to be you is crucial for your faith, especially when you face challenging times. You see, I want you guys to hear something now. You, you were not meant, remember the idea of, of the practical application of retribution theology is legalism. With that in mind, I want you to understand that the fear of God battles legalism. It's, it's the fear of God that I think goes head to head with legalism because when you allow God to be God and you to be you, I want you to understand that you were never meant to be your own savior. But that's what legalism teaches. You are to be your own savior. You were never meant to bear the burden of your own salvation. 
You were never meant to bear the burden of being the author and perfecter and finisher of your faith. You were never meant to bear the burden of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. You weren't. You were not made to do that. You were not made. You were made to be a recipient of grace. You were made to be the recipient of meaning and purpose. You were not meant to bear the burden of creating identity and purpose for your life. You were meant to receive identity and purpose from your Heavenly Father. You were meant to, you were not meant to bear the burden of overcoming your sin all by yourself through willpower and, and, and discipline. You were not meant for that. You were meant to be the witness to the Holy Spirit working in your life, changing your life from the inside out. That's what you were meant for. That's what fear of God does. We allow God to do the work he's supposed to do, and we do the work we're supposed to do. That's why fear of, the fear of God is so important. It's as negative and scary and mysterious as it sounds. It's simply about allowing God to do what God does and you to do what you do. Your job is to remain in him. His, God, his job is to change you. But legalism teaches the opposite. Legalism says you save yourself. You change yourself. You fix yourself. You be better. You grow. You do it on your own. But your heavenly father says, no, that's not what you are meant for. You are meant to be a recipient of my love and grace and transformation. So the, the, the teacher explains a little bit more of why the fear of God is so important at the end of chapter 18. He says, in my search for wisdom and in my observation of people's burdens here on earth, I discover that there is ceaseless activity day and night. And I realize that no one can discover everything God is doing under the sun. Not even the wisest people discover everything, no matter what they claim. What is he saying here? He says, the fear of God allows God to be God and you to be you. Allows God to know the things he needs to know and you to know the things that you need to know. And with that in mind, it helps you also to accept the things that you cannot know and you cannot change. The fear of God allows you to accept the fact that you cannot control everything and that is okay. Like if I were to add my own version of this, I would write this. I realize that no one can discover everything and, and all that stuff, no matter what they claim. And it's okay. I feel like that's what he's really saying at the end of the chapter. As we invite fear of God, as we develop a fear of God in our life, we are okay with the things that we don't know and the things that we can't explain. And he's saying that is the place to be as we live life under the sun with so much injustice and pain and so much confusion. I think the fear of God is one of the most freeing things for us. It frees us. And I know like it's, it's weird and we don't really understand what that means. But in my life, I've understood that the fear of God allows me to believe in three things. And I'm going to close with this. And this is so powerful for me. When I have the fear of God in my life, a healthy fear of God, here's what I understand. I understand these three things. I cannot understand everything. I cannot control everything. But I can entrust everything. This is what the fear of God allows you to do. If you do not fear God and allow God to be God, you cannot say these things with confidence. But I think every single one of us would probably benefit in being able to really put our whole faith in these three statements. That I cannot know, I cannot understand everything. 
And I cannot control everything. Some of you guys need to hear that. You cannot control everything. I was tempted to say some names right there, but I decided not to. You cannot understand everything. You cannot control everything, but every single one of you, you can entrust everything to your heavenly father. And that is freeing, my friends. That is what relieves the burden of having to know everything and having to control everything because I can entrust everything to my heavenly father, even the things that are confusing, like injustice and good young people dying and tragedy and pain. I can understand that that's not how things work and I can be okay with it. I feel like this is so freeing for me. So as we close, I just want to recap. Retribution theology is untrue. That's not how life works. That's not how God works. It is a lie that so many people believe in and put their life into. So instead, let us fear God. Allow God to be God and allow you to be you. And to bear the burdens you were meant to bear and not to bear God-like burdens, divine burdens that you were never meant to bear. And look at your life, the challenges you face, and the problems you're dealing with and say to yourself, hey, I cannot understand everything and I cannot control everything, but praise the Lord, hallelujah, I can entrust everything to my heavenly Father, let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, we talked about a lot of stuff today, a lot of theology, a lot of heavy things, Lord. And and I don't know what got through, but Father, I pray that today the veil would have been lifted against this false truth of retribution theology. That if we do good, we get good, Lord. That's not how you are. That cheapens who you are. That diminishes who you are, Lord. And instead, let us allow you to be you, as glorious and wonderful and as powerful as you deserve to be, Lord. Let us honor you in that way by allowing you to be God and we'll just be ourselves, Lord. Father, if there's anyone in this place, in this space who is going through challenging times, Lord. I hope they don't feel like we're trying to diminish their questions and their issues and their pain. You know, we understand it and it's a struggle. We've all experienced it, Lord, and those questions come up. But I hope, Lord, that we will be able to move forward in this moment and just entrust all of that to you. All the challenges, all the pain, all the struggles and the questions and the confusion and the doubt, we entrust it all to you. Lord, in your name we pray, amen.